On this edition of The Golf Guy, we talked to Craig Kessler, who is the longtime director of public affairs for the Southern California Golf Association. Prior to that, um, he was with um, the Public Links Golf Association, which merged with the SCGA in 2010. And uh, it was a great combination and um, I think most people at the SCGA would say one of the very best aspects of the combination is it brought um, Craig Kessler to the SCGA. Um, Craig is just a tireless and incredibly skillful advocate for the game of golf. Um, and um, we talk in this episode about how he got started in that and, and some of the major issues that the game is facing. So upcoming on this edition of The Golf Guy, Craig Kessler, Director of Public Affairs for the SCGA. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy, and I'm really thrilled today to be joined by Craig Kessler, who is um, uh, currently Director of Public Affairs for the SCGA, but has had quite a long career, as we'll talk about in um, in golf and, and in the issues facing the game. Um, Craig, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm, I'm flattered to be asked. <laughs> so let me just, just to give folks a little bit of background before we get into a lot of the substantive stuff that you've done over the years, uh, maybe just tell folks kind of where you grew up and kind of how you got introduced to the game. I'm a native of Los Angeles. I haven't lived here my whole life, but I've lived in the state of California my whole life, and I've spent a majority of it in, in the Los Angeles area. And I got introduced to the game the way I think most uh, persons get introduced to the game. My dad played the game. Mm. Now, he wasn't born to the game. He played the usual high school sports and other things. And, and I think um, he had a little bit of that sense that, well, golf was not a, necessarily a game for him. He didn't come from that background. But I think he watched Arnold Palmer uh, you know, on TV and thought, sure. you know, I'm not going to be playing baseball or football or any of those things anymore. This looks a little bit interesting. And he found his way to, at the time, a, a Los Angeles County golf course. And it was incredibly inexpensive. And and it didn't interfere at that time with my mom's passion that we were going to send our kids to, to college and, and all those kinds of things of, of that particular era in, in California, the United States of America. Yeah. And uh, so he fell in love with the game and then um, and, and introduced me to the game. And and so that that's a very uh, my story is an extremely common story. And he played. Um, he died just a few years ago at the age of 90 and spent wow. the last 26 years of his life in Napa. And that was associated like so many of the other things he did with a club membership. And, and so, um, he made it a part of his life and, 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 uh, so it became part of mine and, you know, I played high school golf and, and not particularly well, I played with a lot of persons at the time who, some of whom went on to be Walker Cuppers and tour winners. Really? So oh, so you had some teammates that were, that became that stellar. Wow. Absolutely. And my close buddy was just a mere one CIF, you know, we played. So I kind of understood for that, that my attraction to golf was I knew I wasn't very good. And I was probably better than I thought, because I'm comparing myself to, you know, Walker Cuppers and people who went on, became all Americans in school. And in one case, who went on tour, who still remains a friend to this day. Wow. wow. And, and I thought I, I looked at them and I looked at the game I played and I thought, no, I, I think you might play this game for fun the rest of your life. It seems that way. But but in terms of being competitive player, not so much. 
Sounds a lot like me. Um, very, very similar. My dad um, played uh, all the way up till he uh, passed away a while ago at the age of 92. He introduced me to the game. Um, very similar. I played in high school, played a little bit in college only because it was a very non-athletic league where I went to college, but um, was not um, any great shakes, but loved the game like you do. So, so you introduced the game, you love it. Obviously you still do. Um, you knew you weren't going to, um, you know, necessarily have a role in it as a player going forward, but kind of talk to me how you uh, came to uh, career wise decide that um, this was going to be something that you would be have a career in on the administrative side of it. Well, it's it's probably a, a more interesting story than, you know, I would say as a very young man. The notion of ever working in golf, if you told me when I was 20, 25, or even 30, you will spend, you, you will work in career, a career in golf more than any other, anything else you do in your life. I would have laughed it off. I would have said, no, I plan to play golf. I may join a golf club. I'll play on Saturdays. I'll have a good time. But I didn't see anything as a young man that intrigued me. I certainly wasn't going to be a, a PGA golf professional. I really didn't see any attraction to working at, at a golf club and golf administration in my youth was a pretty, um, I don't even understand what it was or what it did particularly. Um, and I was aware of the SCGA and I remember four magazine in its primitive days when it was primarily printed everyone's handicaps. And yes, they were handicaps then not handicapped indexes and there was no world handicaps. Right, right, time. right. So I thought, this is not for me. I'm a really good student. I'm going to, I'm going to do something and, and apply my intellectual, my intellectual skills to something considerably more challenging than that. Now, having said that on a podcast, some of my colleagues in the industry may take offense. Uh, but over the years, one of the things that's happened, I think, in the golf community is, the, is more and more persons who have have the same sort of passions to apply their, you know, some, some other skills in, in, in the interest of a game they also love, there's more and more and more room. And that's something that's almost exponentially happening. At the time, I'm thinking about hanging it up. So to the mm. degree to which I may have contributed to some of that, I'll take great pride. And, and I just hope some of the younger persons who benefit, um, many of them at the SCG and other golf organizations around the country, will give me a little bit of nod in, in, my, in my elderhood that I, that I paved away a little bit for them. But I never, again, it was just something that was, uh, I won't call it anathema, that's too strong a word, but it was not even, it was not even in, in my mind. I never thought about it. Okay, uh, and, and um, you've definitely paved the way for a lot of folks, we'll get into that, but that's interesting. So, so how did, so I'm, I'm trying to go back and you've had so many positions over the years, but I kind of pick up the thread um, with you being um, uh, executive director of the Public Links Golf Association, which you were for, I think, 11 years. So prior to um, the PLGA merging into the SCGA, which I think was around 2010. So talk to me about what those days were like, how you got into that position, what that was like, and then how it led up to ultimately the two organizations merging. Well, I backed into that one by accident as well, although in, in retrospect, maybe it wasn't as much as a, of an accident as I thought. I've told persons that the first golf association I was ever a member of was the SCGA. The second one was the NCGA. And the third one is I just happened when I when I returned to the L.A. area, I joined the men's golf club because I come from that generation. You had to join a club. You have to have a handicap. 
yeah. and not necessarily to compete, but well, you know, the kinds of, every, every golfer listening to this knows the kinds of competitions I'm talking about that we really did it we <laughs> with all of our friends every time we tee it up. Right. So I found that <laughs> we were, I said, well, what is this? We're, we're a member of something called Public Links Golf Associate. I said, is that honored by the USGA? If I get invited somewhere, will they accept it? That's how ignorant I was. And the answer <laughs> was yes on all counts. And I never gave it a, a second thought until a little bit later. Being the kind of person I am, I, I, I always call myself a reformed lawyer with a legal background, a, an intense, <laughs> always, I've always been a, a political animal from, uh, you know, from almost the age of 10, fascinated by the subject, involved at times earlier in my life. And so when I see something I didn't like, and I, and I saw some things when I returned to the LA area, particularly in the municipal golf realm, that just yeah. weren't right. So yeah. I, I know how to call a county supervisor and get involved. One thing led to another. And I can safely say the following, as bizarre as it sounds, what follows may, had probably had to do with the closure of a glass, grass driving range at, a, at the closest nearby public golf facility where I was living at the time, that was that was supposed to reopen with grass, and I'm old school. You know, oh. I, I've learned to hit off mats because I, I've had to get with the times. But that was important to me, and I wanted to find out well what what is going on here. And one thing led to another. It happened a little bit over time, and I discovered that some of these municipal systems were being were being run for everyone, but the public. It was ostensibly there to benefit. And so I got involved at an individual level and got a few changes. And, and later that brought me to the attention of some others. And so really on a volunteer level, which you'll understand, yeah. I was drawn into doing certain things. Uh, and I was fairly young and extraordinarily busy and sometimes, you know, resented a little bit that some of the older, more retired persons didn't take a lot, all these responsibilities. But then once I got over pouting, I went ahead and did these things. Ultimately, found myself for a period of years uh, on the board of directors. I ended up being drafted into a presidency against my will. Wow. And then later when the job came open, I thought I had done volunteer work. I had done other work similar. And I, I thought, well, you know what? I might, that might be a way for me to um, combine the passion with, with something, you know, with, with a, with a job. And so I applied and got it. And um, so had done a little bit of back work to sort of pioneer what off you know the sort of the notion of advocacy in the golf community with a golf association. But keep in mind, Southern California was a unique situation. The Public Links Golf Association was the largest uh, exclusively public golf organization in the United States wow. um, by a wide margin. And it was primarily municipal. So again, being a political animal, my sense of things was you can have all the great ideas, you can have the facts, you can have the law on your side, but you always have to have an organization. You have to organize people in communities. Well, golf clubs are organizations. And back in those days, they were they there was no internet. So they actually had meetings where people got together and signed up for tournaments. So the discussions that would go forward. So it was a ready-made organization. I had no interest in creating one. I didn't have the time, the money, the bandwidth, or any of those kinds of things. Right. So I simply 
used what were very imperfect vehicles for accomplishing a few things in the public arena that um, that you needed an organization. Then I later discovered, and we're, when I discovered what this Public Links Golf Association was, I, I, my thought was, you mean there's an association of these kinds of clubs? So now you're putting together thousands, ultimately it was about 23,000 persons together who could actually, if they spoke with a voice, could really have an effect and move these municipal systems in the direction of actually being run long-term in the interests of public golfers. I, I, you know, maybe I was, uh, you know, it's like a lot of stories. I was just naive enough to believe, to believe that you could do those kinds of things. And so, and so, and, and oftentimes it's the people who pioneer these things who just don't know any better. They're just not callous and indifferent. They're not, they're not cynical. They're just like me. They just think, well, that's the way the system's supposed to work. I think I'll try to work it. So I found myself in spare time, having to run an organization where budgets were tight. And wow. it was a fairly, you know, being a public organization and being much more democratic than virtually with a small D with any other uh, or golf organization with which I've been familiar before or since, uh, since or, or afterwards that, that, uh, you know, it was a, it was a handful but I think that began a pattern where that became a bit of a, I don't want to call it a political force, but more accurately, an advocacy force for thousands who, who, kind of, who wanted to make sure that those systems were being managed, particularly for long-term sustainability. Governments have very short attention spans, and right. they didn't always understand that a golf course to be truly sustainable can't just be operationally sustainable you need to replace parking lots and irrigation systems and greens and driving ranges it's a very capital intensive business and if you drain all the all the net proceeds and send them somewhere else you find yourself in the same position as a lot of other public entities you have to get in line and then golf is not doesn't have the kind of political chops to right. To get, you know, are you going to fix the park, the swimming pool, the soccer fields, or are you going to sink money into the golf course? Well, so so the notion of taking monies out of the greens fees or even adding monies to it, that would then go go towards capital reserve accounts. That's been a consistent theme for more years than I care to remember. So those kinds of longer term things. And then I would say also at a time which we're coming back to again a little bit where the demand is extraordinarily high. Back when I first got involved, it was also extremely high. And there were certain things about what I would call golf's traditional arrangements through the USGA, through associations, through clubs, all those things that seem a little, you know, can, can be a little bit stuffy. Uh, yeah. But but um, the, but they're important to, to the golf universe. And when particularly when when there was a mania for privatizing everything. And of course, I've always said the private sector loves to get in when there's money to be made. Uh, I was pointed out back then, I turned out to be correct, that, they, that, that that argument works. But when they're not making any money, they're liable to give you the keys back because yeah. when you're the owner. So the owner, you have a certain mission. And part of that mission is you're running golf courses. And yeah, you want to make a little bit of money, but you don't want to make it at, at expense of the club structure and the USGA structure. So I got to preaching that, that message continually, which is very much the message of the USGA and the SCGA or the PLGA or every golf organization in the universe and trying to reconcile what many thought were just the sort of the relics of country club universe 
And I pointed out, no, this was the USGA's way from time immemorial of making the game available to ordinary working men and women where they played golf. That right. golf is, to, is the same game, whether it's at Pine Valley or Pine Flats Municipal 9 in the middle of Kansas somewhere. <laughs> you play by the same rules, the same yep. etiquette, the same everything. One is, you know, and, uh, you know one is um, we understand there are different conditions and, and the price points are a little bit different. But I think that's been one of the strengths of golf um, throughout. Yeah. It may be a little old fashioned, but sometimes but there's a little wisdom in some old fashioned things. And I just tried to update them to the public sector and found amazingly that there was a lot of political support for that when you began. Interesting. I, I have long experience for explaining golf at that level. And I would often tell them that if you have, and I still use this particular story, if you yeah. go to a, to a conference of people in the, in the automotive industry, and most of the business they talk about are, are Volkswagen Golfs and, and Honda Accords and Toyota Corollas and the aftermarket and all, because that's where they make their money. That's where they sell en masse. Right. However, if that evening a, a red Lamborghini drives onto the showroom, they all go crazy. <laughs> They're car people. So right. yes, golf people go crazy about Cypress Point Golf Club or Augusta, but the, the real heart, the meat and potatoes of the game are those municipal courses that every Saturday morning are playing the same game or Wednesday morning or Tuesday afternoon. And that that's what's fed the game all the years. And when you put it in the context of the same parkland values and virtues, that, that sustain every amenity. Uh, golf fits very neatly into that universe. The only difference is golf will actually make money as opposed to the rest of them. But you don't right. want to push it too far or you end up with that isolating point. And I've come up against this many times. You don't want to be seen as a playground for the privilege or an enclave for the elite. Right. And you don't want to see, you want to make sure that those fences that surround golf courses in urban areas Everyone understands that they're to keep the golf balls in, not to keep you out. You're welcome. Right. In fact, we want you to come to these places. So right. I, that's a that was a very long explanation, but no, that was great. That's fantastic. I love it. Um, I mean, as you're, there's a couple. There's so many things you mentioned there. I, so when you're executive director during these years of the PLGA, you you have another, you have your regular job, you're doing this on top of your regular stuff, or was that a full-time job? No, that, that became full-time. And that okay. was, but that was a commitment I, I needed to make. And, and, and again, did I, and I have no regrets. Did I leave some money on the table for having pursued this particular passion? Absolutely. However, I'm still pursuing that passion, even though, I don't need to earn another dollar the rest of my life if I live right. to be 92 like your dad. <laughs> Love it. So talk to me about, it's all fantastic. And I can just only imagine, you know, the advocacy, you're dealing with all these different municipalities um, and stuff. That must have been fascinating. But talk to me a little bit about the process, because I'm sure it's an interesting one, by which the PLGA joined forces with the SCGA. So there's a long history there, and much of it's not a pretty picture. Um, I, I would say that in 1931, the SCGA made a critical mistake, found, them, found itself with a constitution that restricted membership to private clubs. Mm -hmm. So there were a few public clubs. Some of them are still around. Some, there were, there were, some of the original PLGA members were something called Santa Monica, which is where the airport is. 
Mm-hmm. Or Westwood Golf Course, which is where the huge cemetery is. That was all on federal land. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Go figure. The, the federal government thought that, that military airports were more important when, when World War II hit than, than golf courses. You know? <laughs> and, so, and, and so Santa Monica went away. There's another, you know, so that's on the side of the airport. So they wanted to play team play and they applied for membership and were turned down. But the president of, of the SCGA at the time, Mr. Seaver, said, well, we'll write to the USGA and sponsor an application. You can create your own golf association under the USGA license or banner, and you can do whatever you want. Well, that was a critical mistake. Because, well, I'll explain in a moment. Yeah, and we did. And the USGA simply said, you know, we have this. This was 1931. We have this newfangled championship called the Public Links Amateur that we began in 1922 for members, for those who are not members of private clubs. What many listening to this may not know is that up until 1970, the U.S. Amateur Championship was restricted to members of private clubs. Oh, so I, did not, I did not were, know that. That's interesting. Two, yeah, there were two of them. And then, and so, uh, so this was this entire bifurcation of the game. So forced to go out on their own, they you know, passed around a shoebox and had a meeting and uh, decided, OK, we're going to we're going to run a golf association and the USGA is going to sanction us. Well, uh, even through the 30s, uh, public golf grew. Uh, in fact, a lot of things in the public sector grew during the middle of the Great Depression, <laughs> one of the great anomalies of history. Right. And then after World War II, it exploded. And when I say it was a critical mistake, it dawned on the SCGA some years, well, many years after World War II, well, wait a minute, we consigned ourselves to, we, we, we eliminated ourselves from the growth sector of the game. Right, exactly. So grew, and then there was a values gap. So even though the two associations did almost identical, almost all the same things, they did it for a different constituency. The leadership was different. As I always preached, if you look at the board of directors of the SCGA, it's a bunch of municipal people, men and women. Why? Because that's our that, that's all we have to draw from. So uh, that, that's what you end up with. So running their affairs on their own, um, the SCGA made over the years clumsy attempts, I think, to conquer it or to take it over it or use a money advantage. And of course, that never worked. Those kinds of things don't work. And right. never, however, um, beginning in the 1990s, the SCGA began to change and uh, radically changed its constitution. And in many ways, as I used to tell the board of directors, we should be flattered that they're emulating what we're doing. The delegate right. program came out of our book and that's good for golf. But keep in mind when, when they get close enough, there's no reason for us to exist because the, we can benefit from the economies of scale and, 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 and pool resources and I knew that day would I it would come, and so as things closed out and and the values gap you know kind of narrowed down, um, there came a moment. Um, and and I, I have to credit Kevin Heaney played a huge role in this because he very quietly, uh, no more to me than perhaps others, he was very much on this vision of making the SCGA this truly universal, public and private, all things of the game of golf. And that became apparent. And so instead of, of trying to conquer, he did this. I think he did the really smart thing. It was not his aim. I think he did everything he did for all the right reasons for the game of golf. And then one day we always talk about it. The famous, we would always meet 
there was the sense publicly that there was acrimony because some of our devotees of the two organizations would continue this idea that we didn't like it because the truth be known, we met together and collaborated on so many things for the good of the game. So in, um, you're right, in 2010, uh, we had one of our breakfasts and um, I had a sense that day, it was important to me that Kevin raise it. Yeah. And he was very nervous. He's admitted this years later. He was extremely <laughs> nervous. He's a very cool, calm, collected guy. He is, yeah. And yeah. he was getting very nervous. And I thought, okay, he's finally going to ask me this. I can't wait. And and so, um, and it's a very small world. It's an interesting story. So, and I had met him in Diamond Bar because I knew he drove in. And also, he and I, and this name will be very familiar to everyone on this podcast, and a fellow named Mike Ortega. And I yes. was playing in a in a in some kind of benefit for some junior group at Montebello, so it isn't too far from Diamond Bar. Yeah, and that's when Mike was, you know, on the board. Now he's the president of the SCGA. Right, and, right. And so I delayed. I kept waiting, and I was late getting to the golf course. Mike was furious. I said, "Well, I got some things to discuss with you," and and so um, and, and he was not the president at the time. I needed to go talk to the president, but so. Kevin had mentioned it, and he's told me years later he thought I might jump over the table and strangle him. Instead, I said, you know, I think the time has come. I need to go talk to my president, my board, and I think this is a good idea, which means that if you never hear from me again, you know what happened. Uh, and, and, and I said, I think this should be explored. And so I think, and I was more optimistic than he was. He thought, it, I think at the time, he Kevin thought, it would lead to, you know, maybe a two or three year transition where we did more things together. I think we did something that turned out to be very smart. Instead of starting the discussions between ourselves and ultimately we brought in the two executive committees with all the niceties and the easy stuff, we identified what we thought would be the deal breakers mm -hmm. and at those first, because if they did, then I think our backdrop was, well, let's develop a more cooperative relationship that might lead to the point where the deal breakers no longer are deal breakers. Mm -hmm. Instead, shockingly, we went through the deal breakers and we came to resolution on every one of them very, very quickly. Wow. And wow. I thought, well, I, I was, you know, what is the delay here? And so ultimately, you know, we, we opened up the discussions and, and 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 because it was a merger of choice and not some of those that have happened later either because of financial circumstances or because the USGA's desire to do some consolidations all for good reasons but those were in many cases shotgun marriages this sure way, at any time we could have walked out the door and i think looking back and i've always shared this with kevin i was very honest with our clubs and our membership to tell them that there will be losses because there's always loss no matter what you do. There will be a sense of intimacy that I think characterized the PLGA that we will try to inject into the SCGA. But by definition, a 23,000 member organization that's fairly tightly packed in LA and surrounding counties is always going to be more intimate than a, than a Southern California wide organization that today is up to 192,000 members. Um, so there will be losses, certain traditions and all the rest, but for strategic reasons, all of us will be better off. And the most important thing, whether it's PLGA, SCGA or USGA, we're all, those organizations are always about what's right for the game. If it's right, right for the game, do it. Uh, we're not, we don't make profits. There are no bonuses. That's our mission. And so ultimately I told even the skeptics that 
you may feel some, you will feel some losses and being honest with them was important because I knew sure. they would feel those losses so they wouldn't regret it. And I explained to them also, but as each year passes, you're going to realize in the rear view mirror, this was the, this was a good thing. And I was very proud of the fact that our clubs voted unanimously to make the move. And even uh-huh. those who voted a little begrudgingly, I had the, some of them have contacted me even as recently as a year ago to say, you know what? I, I really argued with you, but you know, you were right. Wow. That's and, awesome. And, and, and it worked. And, and so I think, um, and I, I think looking back at, it, it uh, I think we had a couple of leaders at the time of uh, two organizations who, who understood that at the end of the day, it, it was about what's right for the game of golf in Southern California. And uh, we did one of the hardest things to do. We put together something that made what was pretty good at the time, even better because mm-hmm. oftentimes in the effort to perfect, what's the Greeks say, don't make the, don't let the enemy, don't let the perfect be the enemy. Beep, exactly. Right. We didn't do that. So we, we didn't aim for perfect. We aim for better. And I think uh, one of the things is that there's quite a bit, the legacy of PLGA actually is deeply embedded within the current SCGA. Sure. So that if you look at the composition of the board of directors, you look at the committees, you look at the thrust, you look at even so much, so many of the tournament programs are very much infused with the spirit of that PLGA. And that sort of intimacy that was the hallmark of the Public Links Golf Association, the SCGA is closer with, to its golf clubs and more on the ground in the communities where golf is played than it ever was prior to the merger. And, uh, and, and I think that is, and I, as I have always explained, I'm not a big fan of museums, uh, you know, where you, <laughs> but I am a fan of, of, seeing, of seeing the legacy of the past um, you know, the great Burkean phrase of uh, everything, all organizations are, are compacts among the living, the dead and the unborn. Well, if the dead have, you, know, you want the good part of the dead. I also told them there are certain things that we did that we can like not do anymore. Don't do these things because I, you know, you have an opportunity to also, also say I was saddled with a few traditions that I didn't like and couldn't get rid of. But let's get rid of them now as we move forward. And so um, there's, it was a fascinating story, uh, one that you know, I, I think worked out extremely well. I always knew that I was the one taking the gamble because if it, you know, it didn't work out, it was, it, you know, it would not have it caused any harm to the SCGA, but you'd never heard of me again. And so I'd be playing golf somewhere, but you never would have, you never would have heard of me. And I think, and I think that the, that became almost a unique opportunity to graft something into the SCGA that it long pined for. Because what had become apparent in the couple of years leading up to the merger, particularly when we were dealing with water issues and political issues, it was the little public links golf association that was being asked to lead because we had pioneered advocacy, mostly in the municipal arena, but the principles, but we had the contacts, we, we, had, the, we had the relationships, we had the understanding of how to do that. I always said it, not because we were particularly virtuous, but if 85% of your organization is, is, is dependent upon the governments that own your, own your properties, you better learn how to do that in the high demand era, where you'll soon find yourself where many other uh, public golf communities found themselves in the Sun Belt, which was on the outside looking in. So I think the SCGA, so we were able to incorporate that, and I've been able to focus you know, well, I'm not exclusive attention, but primary attention uh, as as expanding well beyond, truth be known, we still do a lot of work in the municipal arena, 
but to expand it to the water issues, the tax issues, uh, you know, last year, this, you know, AB 1910, which is a combination of all of the above, and then take that ultimately where the SCGA leads the whole state in dealing, which is, which is a bit, you know, a bit tough because I always tell people, you know, Los Angeles is 400 miles from Sacramento and Sacramento is where that action is. So um, we've become that way. And I think it's, it's, it's had a way of moving beyond. So you see the PGA of America, the United States Golf Association uh, and the National Golf Course Owners Association, they've all substantially moved in the direction of recognizing that golf's been really slow to get involved in advocacy. I have a theory on that because I've given it long thought as to yeah, why. Yeah, I'd be interested. All right, I'll go into it. So I uh, hope you had it. Well, let, me, I, but let me just pause one second. I want you to okay. go into it. But just to sort of, because um, you, you're you going exactly the direction I was wanted you to go in, which is perfect. So I mean, and just for people listening, because Craig is so modest. I mean, Craig, I just and I just want to highlight what he said. I mean, the advocacy role, which he is peerless at um, in golf, um, really was brought to the SCGA through the PLGA merger because the PLGA merger brought Craig to the SCGA and and um and I uh and and he does a phenomenal role with it but I'd love to hear your theory on this stuff because um you're so right I mean I think the SCGA and other organizations including the USGA were slow to this and you kind of brought it to the SCGA talk to me about your theory and kind of um kind of how you how you view that I think that coming out of World War II, keep in mind that from 1946 through 2005, that's 60 years. Yeah. Golf was unique among recreational activities, whether they're purely recreational or a business, had a business component like golf, in that every one of those years, every one of them, and some of those years were pretty tough years. We had missile crises and deep recessions yep. and stagflations sure. and gas lines and wars and division and riots in the streets. There were more golf courses on December 31st of every one of those years than on January 1st. And, and, and during good decades, like the 60s, a lot more. But even the 70s, as bad as it was for so many sectors, golf grew. So yeah. golf grew. There was an amazing confluence of events. And I'm going to use a golf phrase. We had incredible tailwinds pushing us. <laughs> and a confluence of a of an exploding middle class, which brought the game to more and more greater percentage of the yep. population, a longtime commitment for peculiar reasons coming out of America's progressive era at the dawn of the 20th century, when both conservationists and at that time, you got to remember that, that progressive Republicans, I know the two don't always necessarily go <laughs> together in 2022, but they did in 1905, yep. Yep. decided that with the closing of the frontier, we needed to build parks, the, the national parks movement. We're talking Teddy Roosevelt times, right? <laughs> Hugh Root, uh, 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 William Howard Taft. William Howard Taft, within three months of being after being inaugurated president of the United States, you know, he had a big job. He had a lot on his plate. Writes an op-ed in, in the Washington Post advocating for the creation uh, under the National Park Service of a municipal golf system in, in Washington, wow. D.C., seeing wow. the virtues and uses the phrase golf is a magnificent game for all ages and families and should be enjoyed by those, by, by average men and women who can't afford 
he didn't use this phrase, I, I add it for color, who don't float their yachts on Newport Bay, but are just plain, <laughs> and that we want to extend it. So, so for a period of time, government largesse, the public sector built these golf, bought the property, built these golf courses, and truth be known, in most places operated them just like they operate other park functions. It costs money because they're not in business to provide soccer fields and swimming pools. This is an amenity we pay for. Uh, well, golf became so popular that they, that in particularly in urban areas, you couldn't help but make some money because right. there was also, but so with that ethic and that understanding that a public sector buoyed us, and then this enormous expansion of the middle class coming out of World War II, uh, you know, the United States sits astride the world, Individual and Arnold Palmer helps because a game yep. that was in his country club suddenly, you know, the guy with, you know, he was strapped up, he had the cigarette hanging from his mouth and hitched up his pants and charged. Um, and so we grew and we grew and we grew. And then we became a, a way of, we actually grew, we had a symbiotic relationship, we probably still do with real estate industry, golf courses, yep. houses. Yep. So yep. There's so many golf courses that got built that as standalone golf courses, they made no sense whatsoever, but moving the real estate, they did. But the game grew so fast that it absorbed these bad business models. And uh, you'd be surprised at the golf courses that were like, you know, that were struggling municipal courses. No one knew what the public course, no one knew what to do with them. Ultimately, with the infill, affluent people said, we'll buy it and we'll run a private club. So, what I just explained going 60 years unabated with continued growth and at the back end with that, you know, sort of exuberance, we built too many of these golf courses that were very high price points and mm -hmm. they didn't. And suddenly, you know, the game of musical chairs stopped in around 2004, 2005. I mean, if we want to, you know, if you want to read the Wall Street Journal, they would say we were a classic mar a market, an overdue, a long overdue market correction. Right, right. So overdue, it becomes a little severe. So you add to that the recession that happened a few years after 2004, which we, was let, we were led into that by the bust of the housing sector. Yeah. Well, we had a close relationship. So suddenly we're not growing to, to, to absorb these bad business models and they're going bankrupt and people. And so we had a series of strikes against us that really put us behind. Mm -hmm. Quite honestly, we were so successful unlike other sectors that are really in the state of California are smaller than golf, but long ago realized that if they didn't develop ad, robust advocacy functionality, uh, they were, they were in trouble as a business. Golf never had to face this. And quite honestly, uh, golf floundered for a period of time, not really knowing what to do, not recognizing that those strong tailwinds dissipated. It kind of went dead calm. And then they picked up in our face. And so one, so golf never had this tradition of taking a certain percentage of its assets and investing it like, oh, in this state, nurserymen and flower cutters and uh, lands, country, you know, landscapers, all these much, you know, golf says, well, we're mom and pop, we're small. Well, we're not smaller than they are. We're right. larger than they are. They have right. enormous presences or things that are more identity propositions. We have a great California bike coalition is a fantastic lobby. I, I, I look at it all the time. It's a good model or all the environmental groups. And I bump into some of them, um, whether it's Coast Keepers, Heal the Bay, um, National Resources Defense Council, that's a little bit larger. Uh, the Sierra Club, 
they are they are advocacy operations. I remember playing some years ago when I was executive director of PLGA in a in a tournament out of my own pocket because we didn't get involved in politics for a local politician who was very supportive of the golf community and mm-hmm. I and I got, I'm on the cart with a guy from the California Restaurant Association and we're and he's from Northern California we were in Southern California and we're chatting it up and he's asking me what's going on in public links and I start talking he says wait a minute what are you talking about uh, you're an association in California an association is just a front for doing lobbying right. I said, no, I said, he said, but golf associations, I said, well, we do a little bit of that in our spare time, but we're more organized. I said, by the way, you're a member of one. He said, I am. I said, you're an NCGA member. You have a handicap. He says, oh yeah, I guess that's an association. He said, but it's not, he was totally confused. That's funny. And so golf, so the rest of the world thinks an association is a front for advocacy and golf is something quite different. And there's probably wisdom somewhere halfway between the two visions. So I, I just think we've been slow to it. And then when you're in the middle of a recession, it, it's tough to uh, find resources to dedicate to something that you have no you, in your budgets and those kinds of things. So I, I think that, um, so we're behind in that regard. And the game's big institutions really have a difficulty getting a handle on it. And from a personal perspective, they particularly don't understand the difference oftentimes between what I would call the cherry on top of the cake, you know, the capital day, the, the, the photo op. I said, everyone does that, <clears throat> but there's a huge deep layer cake underneath it for those right. that are successful. And it's the really hard work of advocacy and it's, it's hard labor intensive work. And it's, uh, it's about relationships. It's about strategy. It's about being absolutely <clears throat> never being flummoxed by the fact that you end up in these meetings where you think all rationality has gone out of the room. Uh, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. It, everything is uncertain, ambiguous. Things come into play that you that you don't really know. And that can be very unsettling for many because there's no real playbook on how to handle that. Or in the words of those who are longtime residents of Los Angeles and like I am, read a lot of newspapers, will recognize the the name of Rick Orloff, who was the dean of the LA Daily News' political report. He was a friend of mine. He played golf, by the way. And he was a hard-boiled, you know, the old-style reporter. And he had a little thing in his office at LA City Hall. And it was a short phrase that he put up in big, bold print, it's never over. And people (laughs) would all, you laugh, you know what it is. So people would ask, Rick, what do you mean it's never over? He said, you ought to know if you're in, if you're in my office in this building, if you just had your greatest political victory or your worst defeat, you wake up the next morning and you have a, you just have a different set of opportunities and challenges. And no matter what it is, it's never over. So I just want to make sure that people who come in here and say stupid things like, I thought this was over. I point to the sign and said, Maybe, maybe you don't belong in this building. If you think anything is ever over, no matter what happens, it continues to move forward. And those who don't understand that, you got to be, maybe I just thought of the illusion of sharks have to keep moving all constantly. Right. Maybe in this realm, if you stop moving, you die. And I think that was, that was Rick's point. And he was kind to the golf industry. Uh, you know, he would, he would include quotes and so forth because he played and he had some sympathy for it, but uh but he didn't, he didn't tolerate, I don't think he tolerated fools particularly gladly. And, and so I, I would always point out that that is, I think, some of the difficulty 
And I think with golf organizations, <clears throat> most golf institutions and organizations begin with the ideas of championships. Right. Well, the, 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 you don't run a championship the way you would handle a lobbying campaign because you'd be terrible at it. And you right. don't have to lobbying a campaign the way you'd handle a championship because you'd be terrible at it. Absolutely. And yeah. And sometimes reconciling those can be somewhat difficult. But anyway, that was my sort of theory that we were lucky and thought maybe it was attributed to our own particular genius. Or again, I'm a political animal. So I always think of the you know that great 1992 speech of the Democratic Convention by the governor of Texas and you know who who gave the you know was talking about then incumbent President George Bush you know and we're talking about Ann Richards here Ann Richards yes poor poor George he was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple I've actually <laughs> used that phrase I've credited her that some in some cases golf found itself born on third base and forgot that you know luck and providence put us there. And when that runs out, you're not going to stay on third base or you're never going to get home unless you unless you become unless you really work hard and are creative and do the kinds of things that I, I think golf didn't have to do before. And I think that's why we find ourselves behind. The good news is golf is awakened to that and is trying to make the effort. Uh, and, and, and I notice I said trying to make the effort. And that's good. And I'm very patient because I, I do believe in the, in the Rick Orloff dictum. It's never over. So you just keep working with what you have and just trying to keep moving that ball a little bit forward when there's an opening and there's some clear openings there. And so I'm going to continue to pursue them. And, and I'm optimistic about I'm optimistic because not because I'm Pollyanna, but because I again, like I explained at the beginning of this talk that. I maintain that naivete that, well, my God, these systems are publicly owned parks. They should be run for the public, right? You kind of have to have that naive spark throughout your life in order to get up and continue to battle these things. And, I, and I've always, always thought that the, that the optimists are the, are the actual realists because they're the ones who, who move, our, move the ball forward, make things better, and are willing to put up with all the, all the disruptions and all the brick walls you, you run into. Cynicism is kind of like death. It's so easy to sit on the sideline and say, why bother? Nothing can be done. And, uh, and I, I just have the opposite view and relish the opportunity to try to get things done. That doesn't mean you'll succeed, but failing doesn't has never bothered me from continuing continuing to try. So uh, that's why I'm still doing this. And you can see uh, when I consider it, I sometimes use the phrase, you know, I'm getting a little too old for this. And most people look and say, Craig, we know you're old when you play golf because we used to play with you and we're noticing the way you play now. But on these kinds of things, at least when you're talking, you seem like a young guy. So maybe I'll stick with it a little longer. No, you have so much energy. You know, it's funny listening to you and just particularly what you just said, I'm and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm reminded of the Teddy Roosevelt quote about the man in the arena. Um, and, and you personify that, which is fantastic. Let, let's talk about, um, if we could, maybe a couple of the issues that are, you know, facing the game in the public arena. Now that you've, you know, if our, our, uh, our good luck streak, you know, ended a while ago and advocacy is important. Um, I'm curious. I mean, one thing, I know you grappled with is sort of in California here, the legislation about taking golf courses for housing and stuff. And I'm not even uh, up to date where that exactly stands, but um, that's got to be one issue that occupied some of your time, I would think, the last few years. Oh, it, it dominated my time in 2022. And then um, 
literally on May 19th, it, it died. And we knew it was, I was pretty confident it would die, but you, you never know what's going to happen in politics. But literally the next day, May 20th, I was conducting a meeting up in Los Angeles of about 35 golf clubs that are on, in LA Water and Powers District because we were getting ready for a big June 1st meeting that I had set up to cope with. That was the opening day when the Metropolitan Water District wanted 35% savings from certain uh, jurisdictions, right. and that was one of them. That's a long story where we had done a lot of work with the city of LA back in 2009-2010, had put a lot of changes, I think, that worked very well into their conservation ordinance. So we were playing on that. And we were continuing, but there was a lot of panic. So literally got no, no rest from May 19th that died uh, to May 20th. And that was watched by an awful lot of persons in the United States, uh, uh, not just golf organizations, but big businesses that are invested in golf, like NBC Universal tracked it. In fact, the first congratulatory uh, email, uh, text I got was from, from their, the head of the whole, of the whole organization's um, Wow. Yeah, from James Chin, who runs their advocacy back in New York, he was tracking it, and and his not understanding California, he wanted to make sure that his understanding that when the appropriations committee that morning said held in committee, did that mean what he thought it meant? I said yes. One of the things that the world didn't know was that it only made it out of the second committee of policy committee of reference, local government, on an agreement. The author agreed that should it get out of appropriations, and most people didn't think it would, it would be significantly amended in three broad areas. And I'm not gonna go into specifically what those amendments, before it would hit the floor of the assembly. Those amendments would have largely neutered the original, a bit of a face-saving um, technique for the author who, um, who put a lot of chips on this and really fought very hard to get this thing passed. And, and Christina Garcia, um, I, you know, I, a lot of people got very angry at her and, 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 but I, I came to somewhat admire her for the, for the, for the constituency she represents and for the causes she pursued, many of them very valid. Mm -hmm. She is a warrior on behalf of her, on behalf of her issues. The sad part was this one, she was a warrior on behalf of an issue that would have been devastating to the California golf community. So uh, I was on the other side. That didn't mean I didn't admire her, admire her tenacity, sure, sure. but I, yeah. but I wished that she would have given up earlier when she probably, when others, most others would have, but anyway, so it's, it, it died. And just, just let, maybe just let's tell people who aren't as familiar with it. What what would it have done if it, it uh, the way it was originally proposed, just so people know? It kept going through iterations and, and, and amended downward. But in its final form, as it, it came in May of this earlier this year, it would have offered uh, many millions of dollars of free money, public subsidies to both developers and small cities to take municipal golf courses and bypass some, but not not all of the of the of the prerogatives of local zoning control, and uh, chop them into housing complexes that would have had a certain affordability quotient. Mm -hmm. Now, the proponents of the bill talked about, well, it's really uh, again, golfers need to take in mind the notion that something which is now a hundred percent green space and open space and parkland. They were touting that they were actually going to make 15% of it available to the general public because the predicate of those who supported the bill was golf courses are not parks. Mm 
They're not publicly available. Not notwithstanding, of all the active recreational activities, not passive, not not a, a green space or a picnic area, but if you're talking about those things like swimming and soccer and horseback riding, all those things that are also part of park systems, mm-hmm. all is played by more people than than all the rest. So right. it is most highly utilized. But right. they made the argument they were useless. They were in communities that didn't want them, and they'd be better repurposed. And oh, by the way, we're going to provide a lot of public money to ex- to facilitate this. Right. So, and then go around, and so that's what it would have done, and and it would have elim- it would have put in jeopardy. Look, Tory Pines and Rancho Park, and you know, these are not going anywhere anytime soon. Right, it would have put in jeopardy precisely those facilities that the game has invested so many resources. Uh, into in terms of SCGA Junior or First Tee programs or just recreational programs and where where all the game's hopes to grow and diversify itself are at these facilities. We, golf loses those and it has nowhere to do this. In addition, and we're faced with this in certain places, you need to know that, again, we opt, this was a statewide bill, but Los Angeles County or Los Angeles Basin uh, is the most golf star region of the United States, public or private. More right. golfers, yeah. fewer golfers than anywhere. Literally, you have high schools that we've we've had to successfully pointed out that if you don't at least maintain nine holes, five high schools have to give up golf programs. It's interesting because when you get in the in your little insular bubble as a golfer, and it, it never occurs to you that a lawmaker who doesn't play golf needed to be told that every high school has a football field and a track. Many have swimming pools or they have access to the local public pool. They right. have tennis courts, they have basketball, they have gyms. What they don't have is golf courses or driving, right. just for obvious right. reasons. So right. without the municipal courses, you lose the programs and a light goes off. Well, yeah, you're right. We never thought of that. So um, that's what that bill would have, would have done into yeah. jeopardy. And, and so we went all in on this one, something we almost never do. I'm involved in a lot of things. We don't go all in on anything. We just seek to figure out where, what the, where the politics of the moment are and try, whether it's independent contracting or neonicotinoids, nobody on this, listening to this knows what that is, but it's important to us or all those other issues. Um, our general members are not going to get excited about that. So we work within the political context. I know the audience I'm talking to and in California, sure. it's democratic, liberal, urban, minority, period. And everything that all arguments have to be, we did as well as you did on independent contracting because we went and talked to Lorena Gonzalez and we made our case from her point of view, not from we oppose your point of view. Right, like, right. It doesn't matter what your point of view is. I mean, people who disagreed with me, I don't care. My job as an advocate is to do the best for our community and our industry. And uh, it's not to interpose my personal ideas, no matter what they are. This is not I, when I vote, I do that, but not when I do this job. And I pride myself that many people I've played golf with have drawn assumptions about what party I'm registered in. And, I look at them and, I say, and, and often and, and more often than not, they're wrong. And I look at them and I say, well, just between you and me privately, no, you're wrong. And they're just aghast. I said, well, because I said, I take that as a point of pride because I don't want Absolutely. to my politics based on this. Now, when I go to my own little city council or community meeting or I'm with family at Thanksgiving, you're going to hear my opinions, but you're not going to hear them as, as public affairs director for SCGA. No, you're, you're, too, you're a total professional in that regard. Let me, let me sort of 
And it's just, I, I would just say in passing, hearing you talk about the lack of golf course in Southern California, I spent 10 years um, in the Chicago area and Chicago has so many wonderful municipal courses. I mean, I didn't belong to a club in Chicago and, you know, I would go to these, you know, I mean, you know, the Cog Hills of the world, the privately owned courses, which were fantastic. And, you know, almost every park district along the North Shore of Chicago had its own public course. They were all wonderful. I mean, it was just, it was so different coming out here. Um, and to your point earlier, I'm old school too. And I, I just, I'm used to hitting off grass. And I mean, I drove around and around till I could finally find, you know, draft driving ranges. So I, I totally get, uh, uh, you know, uh, resonates with me, all those different points, but let, let, let me sort of, um, just turn you, uh, one other issue. Cause you know, and as we look forward to having the U S open out here at LA country club next year, I know you work a lot with the USGA as well as a lot of other places, water issues We're we're grappling. And I know you're front and center on that with the, um, the, uh, uh program you had at Los Serranos a few months ago. Um, talk to me kind of how you see, as we sit here today at the end of November, we've had a little bit of rain, but you know, in this terrible drought situation where we're at on water and, how you sort of see the path forward for golf as we grapple in Southern California with our water issues? Well, we're, we're, uh, we're ahead of that issue in the sense that many years ago, more than 10, we began engaging major, major water providers, whether it's the Coachella Valley Water District, where I'm headed tomorrow to chair a meeting of a golf and water task force at the district, or Los Angeles Water and Power, San Diego Public Utilities, uh, Goleta Valley Water District, many of them, many of the larger ones, because we can't deal with all the small ones. We made clear to them that um, we understand that as much as, as good as our record has been in the last 20 years at reducing our water consumption, it's gonna have to be that much better in the next 20 years, just as a matter of survival. Uh, and, that, and that we, are, we want to do everything in concert with these regulators and providers to have them meet all the mandates they need. We're not going to fight them. We're going to work with them. We're going to seek their assistance where, where we need it. We're going to then, and I think we've developed really good credibility with them, as opposed to some other sectors and industries, that that, that is actually our, our commitment. I will say this. Right now, we're in sort of what I would call generically level three drought, and mm -hmm. we'll probably go to level four because even if it does rain or snow, it won't happen fast enough to keep us. Golf is really secure in that for the most part, not 100%. We will do, we have the resilience, we have, we have all the plans, we have enough conservation in the bank to deal with it. If we get to level five, because it doesn't rain or snow for the fourth consecutive year, which is certainly a possibility, then all bets are off. I know in most places we will go, I'm gonna use the language of Los Angeles because it's a large jurisdiction. It'll be tees, greens, and something called critically sensitive areas. But as I told the USGA, that doesn't mean fairways and roughs and surround. That means probably the trees that might otherwise die, you can hand water them or something. So that they're aware that there will be no exceptions for the U.S. Open and 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 golf wouldn't want to and USJ said we wouldn't seek that anyway. That that would be really a dumb idea. So that's where we sit right now. Up to this point, three consecutive amazingly dry years in a period that we now understand is mega drought is um, we can cope with that. 
at some point it gets pretty critical, but I'll say this, when we got in some bad shape in some places in 2016, golfers were amazingly understanding. I'm not going to name the facility, but it was one in Santa Barbara County that was really agreed because they're totally dependent on Lake Kachuma for their water. And it was down to 9% capacity. Mm. And the guy who owned this little golf course said, you know what? My customers are playing in larger numbers than they did before. And they're applauding me. They're saying, we know the fairways are dead. The greens and the tees are alive and the conditions are terrible, but we're going to keep supporting you in this. And, mm. and, and because it's the right thing to do, and we're not going to stop playing golf or your facility just because of that it'll rain again and we'll continue to come. So I, I think golfers understand this and are amazingly uh, understanding longer term. Again, I'm going to quote someone who's the fairly new executive director of the Metropolitan Water District, Adele Hajikalil, who known for years because he used to work with him on recycle projects when he was with the city of Los Angeles. And he gives a great speech. Uh, he calls it his one water speech in which he states that while conservation will always be a key tool in our toolbox for dealing with our water situation in California, it cannot be the only tool or we fail as a civilization. We have to invest in 21st water conveyance and infrastructure like we did the first 60 years of the 20th century. And it's gonna be an expensive investment to the degree to which a warmer, drier climate leads to a lesser snowpack and more evaporation and less and less a runoff in the Sierra Nevada and now the Colorado Basin, our old above surface storage techniques and dams, is, it just isn't cut it. You, have, you can have dams, but you have, to, you have to put water in them. Right. We do know that same climate generates the phenomenon of the atmospheric river, which means that the precipitation that does fall often falls in torrents in short bursts, right. we lose almost all of that to the ocean at this point. So right. if we can capture it, clean it, and then use it, not use it for recycling, use it for, for potable reuse programs, which are the technology now exists, or use it to recharge aquifers. We do have a lot of aquifers uh, in many places in Southern California, not just under the California desert, that all of those things will give us much more local supply and much more sustainability. And we can wean ourselves off of Colorado River Basin snowpack and Sierra Nevada snowpack. But so, and, and I always, I repeat that. And I, and I said it at the close of that summit you referred to at Los Serranos, because I'm kind of preparing the golf community to recognize that, for example, a few years ago, when the voters of LA County did something phenomenal by a 71% margin, voted to tax themselves on their property tax bills to fund um, that that was those are the kind that was actually actually the golf community had input with LA County Public Works and the Board of Supervisors mm -hmm. on helping they brought us in and it was almost designed perfectly so the parcel tax would only apply to those areas of a property that were impermeable surfaces so you had your parking lot your clubhouse that would be right. subject to it but the right. golf course is not and if you had discharge permits and you would get credits for that. Well, golf courses have local, state and federal discharges. So it worked out to be extraordinarily equitable. So what I've always been preaching 
you're quoting Adil Haji Khalil, is that it's not a question of whether these things are going to go forward. It's a question of how they're going to be structured. And golf may want to get to the next level of sophistication and understand they can be structured so they're extremely equitable and fair to the golf industry, as Measure W was and is. Or they can be, they can just tax the whole parcel, in which case we're looking at 170 acres subject to something. And now all of a sudden, keeping in mind in this most golf starved area, Los Angeles, when it had much less population and a much smaller percentage of the population played golf, was literally dotted with the kinds of daily fee courses you talked about in Chicago. Yeah. Privately owned, open to the public, very right. successful facilities. But yeah. if you and I, Fox Hills is one of the great 36 hole facilities. Right now, there are three hotels, some business complexes, skyscrapers, the Fox Hills malls, and other things. So, if a developer came to us 50 some odd years ago and started putting zeros on the check, well, we might say, well, the golf course is doing pretty good business, but uh, uh, my great 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 grandkids are going to be living off this somewhere right, in, right. in Riviera. Right. How do I say no? So Los Angeles basically is down to this this second largest city in the country and largest golf market. I would say to the New Yorkers listening, it's largest because we have much better weather, not because we have more people. Right, right. That that is all two kinds of golf course now. Pretty very pricey private clubs yep. and municipal facilities. Another reason why 19 AB 1910 was so important that we're down to that. And San Francisco is down to that. Yeah. And that increasingly America's large cities are going to be down to that because the land is so precious. So many people want the land and golf's existential problem. I've always said, if we, if we were pickleball or tennis, no one would pay attention to us. No one would care what we do, but because we have these 120 to 200 acre green spaces in the middle of urban America. And people look at this and, and when you have, again, AB 1910, we were, as I was stated, we could never let that debate be golf versus housing because housing will win every time. All political polling in California, doesn't matter who you poll, doesn't matter whether it's a Republican area, Democratic area, coastal, inland, uh, urban, rural, doesn't matter. Ask people, what's the number one issue? Housing, affordable yeah. housing. Doesn't yeah. matter where you go. So suddenly we're the we're going to be put up as the solution. So it was really a, an amazing performance that golf was able to marshal its resources, but more importantly, the arguments to point out, as I always did, Golf would never have an objection to participating in a shared sacrifice of public spaces of which it would have to be, be a contributor. So if we stuck all the green spaces in urban California in a pot, and some of them are going to be peculiarly amenable to housing, and we lost a few golf courses, we would not object to that. Our objection was you're singling one and only one out, and, and because you think you can, and because you think we're politically either incorrect or, in, or not popular. And a funny thing happened. We discovered that an awful lot of uh, urban legislators thought the municipal golf courses in their districts were good for their community. They did not buy the premise and didn't think it would thought it thought that maybe failed shopping malls, brown spaces, abandoned commercial areas ought to be the first places we would go. And even that LA Times editorial, which was equivocal, but it made all the arguments. It pointed out in, in a Sunday paper in a way that we could, an audience that we could never reach, that yeah. this was a dumb idea. 
because we should be looking at, in fact, they, they endorsed some other bills that, that, but you know what, housing is such a problem that even dumb ideas deserve a conversation, which was not hardly an endorsement of the bill because they called it a stupid idea and a last resort, but we should continue the conversation. Well, um, so uh, I think, you know, we, and as I always preached, uh, we needed to make sure that people understood the golf courses as green spaces, as public recreational spaces, as things that were that that sequestered carbon. If you look at uh, if you look at heat maps where you have parks and golf courses, it's eight to ten degrees cooler in the summer, and that's a critical issue, uh, particularly in those areas that are that are that are park poor, which tend to be hotter and inland and and more working class. And so we had to very much put, and, and golf has to understand, stop. Uh, look, we love Augusta. We love Pine Valley. We love Cypress. You know, you'd ask any golfer, can we, you know, can we want to play Cypress Point tomorrow? We're all on a plane. We're there. Okay, got it. But un understand that it, we have to start talking about golf as being a part of these public recreational. Yeah. Teams. Oh, I One totally agree. Absolutely. And if we can do that and then point out, yes, just like there are cars that cost 180,000 or some that cost four or 500,000. That's not when you talk about the automobile, you're talking about a Toyota, you're talking about a Honda, you're talking about, yeah. and you're often talking about used cars. And when you're talking about golf, the vet, 80% of it is played on public facilities and in California, one out of four golf courses is owned by governments as part of park systems. So yeah. that's what we need to be. That's what we need to be identifying with and leading with, because that's what ultimately sustains the game. And I have the opportunity. Look, I deal with all kinds of golf courses. I sit with a lot of clubs and I find myself at some pretty, you know, pretty uh, ritzy private clubs. And I always ask sure. the question if I'm sitting with a finance committee or a green committee or a board. Uh, how did you find yourself here? Almost none of them are to the country club born. Many of them have the same story. Well, when I was 26, I started playing a Muni in Long Beach. It was not. Totally. And, yeah. and, and, and then I have a, a either a, a professional practice or some businesses. And, and I, because I love golf, I thought, well, I'll join a private club. And, and, and that and golf needs to get back to yes. There are anything in American life. I mean, a, a home is a, a home is a home is a home, and some homes are, you know, are up are owned by multi billionaires, and they cost forty eight billion dollars or or more. And most homes, when we're talking about the housing market, we're talking about producing things that average working people can afford to buy, and that's why that's our biggest problem in the state because that's no longer true. No, I totally agree, and I would just just I'll just just sort of add quickly that. Um, Having spent all this time this year working on course ratings with uh, our friend Doug Sullivan, um, I've gained a greater appreciation for exactly what you said. You know, we I go 50, 60, 70 miles all over Southern California at the crack of dawn to these public courses, and I love it. And it's really, it, it, it reminds you that's where the game is, where the bulk of the game is. So you're you're spot on with that. Craig, I want to thank you. This has been fantastic, as I knew it would. Um, you're a gem, um, and the SCGA and, and golf has been uh, better for all of your tremendous advocacy work all over the uh, years, a tremendous career that's still going, uh, but just a tremendous career. And uh, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I think we had some fun, and, and, and fun is important in life.
Absolutely. I really appreciate it.